What is good, everybody? My name is Tim Karen, and this is the Performance Health Podcast. Today, we're going to be talking about fitness testing. We're going to dive into what we know, myself and Corey Hobbs, going through more of the practical, but we dive into a couple different research articles looking at capacity of the anaerobic system based off what the aerobic system can do, or sometimes referred to as the phosphagen or oxidative systems. Then we talked about what we can do with Eric Schmidt. And Eric just did a really amazing job of diving into one fitness testing and how can we use this capacity-based model to understand the limits in other energy systems to what we need to do from a prescription standpoint based off of what your capacity assessment tells us. So Eric absolutely blew me away with the level of detail and the depth in which he went. This is going to be a really dense episode. Hope you guys are strapped in, ready to go. If you guys are not a member of the PH curriculum, head over to phpodcast.com, sign up for a membership. It gets you access to the entire curriculum, 50 modules broken up into coaching, nutrition, movement, and training. And then it gets you access application, which goes through all the web shows. So all the web shows will have every single video format, minus all the fluff and intro and everything else that we have incorporated into the podcast, along with the transcripts and then suggested material articles and resources to dive in from the curriculum. So this is a really good value for you if you like these podcasts to get even more from these web shows. Appreciate you guys listening to this. This is going to be a dense episode. It's going to be one of those ones you're going to probably take copious notes. Hope you guys enjoy, and we'll see you guys on the other side. If you're listening to this podcast, that probably means you're a strength coach or want to be a strength coach. And man, do I have the resource for you. It's called How to Become a Strength Coach, Periodizing Your Career in Strength Conditioning. This is your start to finish seminal resource to get you to becoming the best possible strength coach you can ever be. You can get your copy along with access to our course at phpodcast.com. This is a must have for any strength conditioning coach or any aspiring strength conditioning coach out there. It will not only give you a step-by-step tutorial on how to become a strength coach, it will help you optimize your career every step of the way. Absolute must have. If you like this podcast, get the book. All right, Tim, we got fitness testing on the agenda today. So as usual, just start us with the big overarching themes. One of the things that we want to really establish is it's hard to do a lot of fitness testing from a traditional sense that we do in labs, like a YMCA bike test or a stress test in some way within a group setting or a team environment. And it goes into this other idea of one of the things we're going to talk about and what we can do with Eric uh, is this idea of a lot of our sports within uh, the North American part of the world is going to be a little bit behind the eight ball in terms of assessing fitness, relatively speaking to European soccer or football or even like rugby. There's a lot more advancement in understanding physiology and overall bioenergetics in that world. And, you know, this terminology of intermittent sports of this walk, jog, run, sprint, type of dynamic and having a great prescription based off of that and working on capacity. We're football. It's, you know, we're just kind of going for it. We're basketball is just relying on playing and saying that's where we're getting our fitness in. And, and it's not like we know that there is a, there's anomalies, right? There's groups out there that are pretty advanced and have a really good understanding of prescription. But for the most part, it's this kind of 
state of weird purgatory from a fitness perspective when we look at we've detached so much from preseason conditioning tests, the traditional 300-yard shuttles or running 20-110s or or running gassers of some sort to see what their fitness levels in and make sure they did something in off season. Large part of that pretense was established because we got them all summer now. Like, right. We, we didn't have that before where now we can start to say, Hey, we know that we're in quote unquote shape because we had them in for eight, 10 weeks in the off season. And if we build this narrative of, okay, if I'm trying to understand what their fitness levels is going into preseason camp, and we don't really have a great idea of what that is other than just arbitrarily going through a off-season conditioning or off-season training program or anything of that nature. Well, I, I don't know if we can sit there and say that we are truly assessing or understanding what our physiology is. And one of the other things that we're going to get into with longer duration interval work within what we know and, and what we can do with Eric is this idea of longer duration intervals and hitting this 30 to 45 to 60 second duration at what Eric time or coined as a sweet spot of 120% of what your five five minute potential is, right? So if you can do hundred RPMs for five minutes, you're looking at 120 RPMs for, for one minute in this one minute kind of zone. And that's not something we do a whole lot with this anaerobic phosphagen system sport. So we're, we're going to dive into that quite a bit. And we're going to look at capacity. And we're also going to look at capacity as this idea of the lock and key to getting more density and getting overall higher volumes of the things that we know are going to bring more value, right? And the increased risk from running with fatigue at full speed, the increased or decreased value from altering mechanics from trying to run fatigued at a certain high like threshold, there, there's going to be some conversations to be had about understanding what fitness levels is. So 10,000 foot view, let's dive into understanding fitness testing in a group environment. Let's go through all of the, the, the goods and the bads and the uglies and the, the things that we need to really work through working with 110 guys in the off season and trying to get all these buckets filled. Right. That's a good point on fatigue is going to be our biggest limiting factor, whether that's in the weight room, whether it's on the field, sport, conditioning, everything, fatigue is going to be a big cap for us. So if we can get to a point where, you know, we, we have this less fatigue, right, we're going to be able to perform at a higher level for longer. I guess the big question is, how do you build that? Like, where do you start? I think what we talk about all the way through is reverse engineering, reverse engineering the process to meet whatever you could do from a training prescription, right? So if we need to go through preseason, which is traditionally in football, you know, four to five weeks, and we're looking to get 30 to 35 days of continuous work. And you know, a lot of it's filled up every single day with practices and meetings and the, the athletes that are fighting for a roster spot, the athletes that are fighting to gain reps or gain playing time, the more practices and the more they can participate and compete, the better their chances is of performing at a higher level during the season because they'll have more of an opportunity. And when you're thinking about your job as a performance coach or a strength conditioning coach, you're trying to think about that guy. You know, think about that guy who's fighting for a starting job and going, okay, if that person can't go one day because they just simply don't have it or they get hurt because they're overreaching or they're just not recovering and their performance declines, well, that's that's on you to figure out a strategy to get them ready from that. So that, that would be where I would start with this is what's going to get every one of our guys, specifically the ones fighting for, for playing time and reps and 
the opportunity to play, getting through all that preseason period, and then the beyond of going through 12 football games in the college football setting or in the NFL 17 and looking at this from it's a long time they're going to be playing and competing and there's a lot of intermittentness to it. And there's a lot of stoppages and breakages, but there's also a lot of risk. And if we can start to put our focal point from training on getting that. And, you know, one of the things that we've learned so much in the past 10 years is GPS has alluded to the fact that a lot of these guys are accruing a lot of yardage during practice. And, these marathon practices of 24 periods where we don't count special teams and we don't count the the movement prep period and we don't count this you know walkthrough period it turns into like 30 40 periods and all of a sudden we're out there for three hours a lot of these guys are putting in thousands and thousands of yards and not all of it's full speed sprinting a lot of it's standing a lot of it's walking a lot of it's transitioning a lot of it's kind of just jogging back to the huddle and when we look at the the difference between that and soccer, so to speak, it's you know when you look at a prescription from a research article for fitness testing for soccer, it has this intermittentness to it of walk, run, or jog, run, sprint, and that has a certain level of like okay, if they need to send a certain amount of time in this above 80, 90% threshold of sprinting and a certain amount of time in 70 to 80 and a certain amount of time, 60 to 70, and then a certain amount of time below 60. We should be thinking about that a lot with football and we should be thinking a lot about the, right. Do we need to start to add in transitional stuff? Do we need to start to add in different, almost fartlek like type stuff of walk and run and jog and trying to just change the pace and the duration of bouts of reps or sets or anything that we're doing just to accommodate this unique structure with football and then get into the nuance of different offenses and defenses have different demands, different roster depths have different demands. But to get back to the original point, I think what we really need to focus on is what can we do to prepare our athletes to get through a preseason and then beyond and understanding what is preseason. It's about 30 something practices in a very short period of time where, you know, there's going to be a lot of long time out in the field and for three hours on the field and getting three to 5,000 yards or yards of work. And a lot of it's standing, walking, jogging, and some sprinting or some change of direction. We need to understand that and we need to work our prescription from all the stuff we're doing in the off season, from the strength training, the plyometrics, the speed work, the change of direction work, and bake that into a prescription that helps that person make it through that intermittentness and that really diverse experience called preseason. Right. And that kind of transitioned nicely into like GPS, obviously a great technology but, you know, are we all going to have GPS? How do we best use GPS? Like acute chronic workloads, like that's another great tool. Like we'll probably talk more about these when we talk with uh, Sean Hayes with our equipment talk. But, you know, if you have a GPS, you're at a bigger advantage to work backwards than you are if you don't. So, you know, what kind of tools can we use to set ourselves up for success here? Well, I want to preface it and we'll talk about this with Sean, is having accessibility or resources to some of these tools doesn't necessarily make you better, right? There's a pretty heavy dynamic of a lot of variables, and we're going to be really limited with potentially time and what we really truly understand about statistics from our focal point on physiology and biomechanics. Not saying that there's not some really smart folks out there that 
can triangulate a lot of data points, but you look at a GPS, it's going to give you about 10 to 15 different data points from a practice or any kind of bout that you're trying to assess with a hundred different guys. It's a lot of data. And you do that multiple days in a row, multiple weeks in a row, multiple years in a row. I don't know if necessarily we can say that you're at a crazy disadvantage unless you have a really advanced statistical background or a group that can really triangulate that data. And then we kind of just fall into all the trappings of big data is still going to rely on what we inherently understand or believe, right? So if I say, okay, well, it's just about high intensity sprinting, I'll just look at that. Or if I look at IMAs, which is kind of like a a GPS that has accelerometer and gyroscope function, change of direction or contact, well, that's going to be like, okay, well, I'm going to look at that, you know? And the point being is we're all human. We're fallible. We make these preconceived notions based off our agendas and biases, and we're going to jump to whatever conclusion we want, regardless of how much data we have. And a lot of times, just simply using logic intuition. And, you know, one of the things that we did before we went to GPS was looking at how many guys are tapping out at certain periods during a practice, right? So if our starters are like not doing special teams, or if we did conditioning, which we actually did at Army, and all of our starters were making their way over to the sideline to do muscle beach during that period, it's okay, we're probably reaching these high workloads that our guys are organically trying to find solutions to be able to practice the next day. And I can tell you right there without using a GPS that the conversation needs to be had about cutting conditioning or structuring special teams in a way that was more organized and efficient, right? Instead of doing like three, four huddles and just going wham, 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 kick, 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 sprint, sprint, sprint with 30 guys, why not just do one at a time and have a really good rep and then walk back, talk, debrief, and do it again? It's not all about reps when we're sprinting 60, 70 yards, those are the conversations that I think most strength and conditioning coaches can have right now just by using and applying logic and reason and looking at this from a surface level. It's like a lot of guys are tapping out. A lot of guys are trying to get to practice late. A lot of guys are saying, hey, I don't do special teams. A lot of guys are finding ways to manage their workloads. And one of the classic conversations I can refer to, and this is where GPS and tracking acute chronic loads, which I'll go into here in a second. It's a really good strategy was, hey, we look slower. And this is around October, November. And I asked the follow-up question. So at one point you thought we were faster. And the the answer is obviously yes. So if we look slower, at one point you thought we were a appropriate speed enough to compete in the division one level. Yes. So one, in theory, we did our job from developing team speed, making our athletes prepared from a at least a biomotor perspective. But on the other note is if we're practicing three, four times a week, we're playing games, and then we're lifting two or three times a week, and then gradually we start to see we're decreasing not only the amount of force we produce, but the rate of force we can produce it. Is that a work problem or a fatigue problem? And I think it doesn't really take a rocket science to go probably doing too much in practice. And over time, we're building and accruing a lot of residual fatigue from the previous day, the previous week, when we have these bye weeks and we look at, we're just having conversations, this is harder than preseason. And we track that and triangulate that to acute chronic loads. 
And we can see our workloads are higher than what we did even in preseason or spring practice. Uh, it's a problem. And there's going to be a second order and a long-term consequence from that. But it goes into this point of like, okay, if you don't have GPS, what can you do? Well, you can simply ask on a scale of one to 10, six being very hard, five hard, four somewhat hard, three moderate, two easy, and then one essentially nothing, what they thought the difficulty of the day was. And it's a rapid answer, right? One of the things that we learned really quickly on RPE, and everyone will have their, their take on it, right? This, it's not accurate, it's subjective, it's inconsistent, it's unreliable, it's invalid. As long as we're doing it daily in the same cadence, in the same way, every single time, over time, those numbers will will aggregate into a metric, right? Which the Gabbett research will talk about its workloads. And it's like everything. Like you can do CMJ every day in a force plate and it could be hands going all over the place. It could be not much effort. It could be a, a double tap, right? You see the, the false step on a jump. Like you, there's a lot of ways to do very standardized things in a very unreliable way or inconsistent way. So I would argue there's always ways to make things unreliable but i would also argue keeping things simple is a great way to keep it reliable and just simply saying hey Corey, how hard was practice today on a scale of one to six what was your first reaction four good got it moving on and if i do that consistently with everyone as opposed to trying to coerce and look come on that was harder right come on i don't have a long-gated conversation about it but getting that number is a start and we we match that to what we did in the off season we compare that to how many minutes we were active active right so if we're out there for 24 periods plus these four to six unaccounted periods, which traditionally five minutes, you know, we're getting into this two and a half, three hour mark. And you say a four, I'm going to multiply that four by, by, let's just say an easy number of 300 minutes. And okay, that's a 1200 workload from that day. Comparatively speaking to a four from a 60 minute. Okay. That's, that's quite a difference in, in metrics, right? That's, that's a lot of different workload arbitrary units. And we could say that there's going to be a bigger residual from that 1200 comparatively speaking to that 2400 or that tw uh, 240, you know? And again, it doesn't take a rocket science to break this down and say, okay, if we're practicing longer and it's the same perceived rate of difficulty, there's going to be a consequence to that. And then from there, how do I get the athletes that I'm working with ready for that? And a lot of times we have a hard time matching the duration and the amount of minutes we can accrue in a training week, which NCAA does have restrictions on this of six hours of, of traditional strength conditioning and probably two hours of PT of player led practice or PLP. And you get into this, it's only eight hours compared to speaking to 20 you can do with in season. And a lot of that's been practicing in meetings. So if we want to close that gap, what do we need to do? And how do we get more efficient? How do we get more organized? How do we create a bigger residual from our training? And a lot of it's just understanding what is workload and what is the impact for minutes and yardage, relatively speaking, to the perception of how difficult it was. And then if you can get to the point where you can cooperate that and coordinate that with GPS, heart rate, maybe wearables, you have a lot more, more things at your disposal to really understand what's going on. But again, it's just looking at it this objectively slash objectively and saying, this looks like a lot. This isn't going in the direction that we want. We need to have a discussion on what is the upper limit and how can we best prepare our athletes to play at a high level on Saturday. Right. And I can actually, you know, relate to being super beat up in November and be like, wow, this is way harder than anything we've done all year. And then you're rolling into Navy with two weeks of probably your hardest practices all year. And then, you know, it's it's not a big wonder why we got beat for 14 years in a row or whatever, whatever it was. And you brought up a good question. It's like, well, how do we, how do we do that? So I know Eric Schmidt has a pretty good test that he runs. Uh, what other tests have you seen? Like, how do we do it? Let's, let's try to break that down. 
Yeah. So Eric will talk about a aerobic speed test where we're going to look at five minutes trying to sustain as much output as possible. So what is your average wattage? What is your average RPMs? What is the total distance? What was your heart rate? What was your heart rate recovery? And you can set the right prescription off that, right? So if, you know, like if you have a VO2 max of under 30, that's going to be a problem, right? That, that's an issue. And you can get that information off of that, which if you look at it like a sport like soccer that does beep test majority across the board, whether you, whatever your perception of beep test is what it is, you can get a pretty good idea of what their fitness levels is, but you get a really good idea of what their capabilities are right? How much can they sustain in a training week? That's a great question, right? What is the upper limit? It's less, less about with elite level performance, understanding what the lower limit is actually get some sort of adaptation. It's more about if I'm trying to close the gap from this 99th to hundred percentile, how do I get more in a week, relatively speaking to my other person and understanding what the physiological limits are is the foundation of that. And if I have a person with poor VO2 max, poor resting heart rate, poor blood pressure, poor autonomic function with HRV, my upper limit is lower. My ceiling is lowered. I can't get as much high intensity work within a week. And that's going to lower the overall effect I can get. And I'm not going to close that gap. So finding out what the limit that is by understanding the physiological constraints is a really important piece. And you could do the five-minute test. There's like other things like a 1.5-mile Cooper run test. There's a YMCA bike test. A lot of this stuff takes time. What was always fun about Army, we had it baked into our overall training prescription. They did an APFT every year. I knew what their two-mile time was, good or bad. Everyone would always bitch about it and talk about it like this is not a, a good test. But I had that information, right? And one of the other ones that we always talked about too was we're always going to be in the size of, like side of weight gain, right? So we talked about that in performance, is this idea of what is performance. It's relatively speaking of what we need to do. Our army was gain weight. And we had a lot of athletes that gain weight. But we had a lot of athletes that gain weight, maintained or improved their jump, and then maintained or potentially improved their two-mile run time, which is significant. So if I look at it from a context of if we're developing our athletes specific to football and they're still maintaining in some ways improving, in other areas, right? If you can do a pull-up with 30 pounds of additional body mass, you are stronger, right? If you can do the same number of pull-ups, that is by default, the logical explanation, you are now stronger, right? You just added a 30 pound chain of weight to your body and you can still accomplish a task, relatively speaking to what you did before. That is a phenomenal metric to come through, but the same thing with fitness. If we're running at the same clip and we're bigger body mass, I would argue that your power output, your wattage, and Eric will talk a lot about this in our fitness testing, is this idea of your wattage to body mass, and that's a great correlate. So if you're putting up 100 watts and you weigh 100 kilos, you're one kilo per watt. It's not very good. If you're looking at it from, if you're putting up 500 watts and you're 100 kilos, it's five kilos per watt. That's a lot of potential. And I would look at that potential is what's going to help you create this prescription of what is the upper limit. And one of the things we'll talk about with Rob, one of the things that we'll talk about with Will is this idea of fast switch, slow twitch, and what is how are they going to respond to training, right? So if I'm going to do a lot of capacity work with a fast switch athlete, they're probably going to quote unquote burn out quickly. And that could be because they don't have these fatigue resistant fibers. That could be because they don't have these mechanisms and pathways to shuttle a lot of hydrogen ions or 
delay this lactate dehydrogenase cycle to occur and converting pyruvate into acetyl-CoA and then turning that into ATP eventually through the citric acid cycle or electron transport cycle, or it could just simply be they're just out of shape, right? They don't have the physical capabilities of delivering oxygen, using the oxygen and removing CO2 in an efficient clip. And if they are poor cardiovascular fitness, that's going to have a big impact. And fortunately, we have control over that. Unfortunately, we can have a capability of helping with that. If someone's morbidly obese, they're going to have poor cardiovascular fitness, just bottom line. If someone is too anaerobically focused, they're going to have poor cardiovascular fitness. And all that is, is going into this idea of what can I do to raise the proverbial ceiling? And so finding limitations, finding weakest links, finding limiting factors or constraints and trying to expand upon that. And that's what I would look at with football. And one of the tests that we'll talk about here in a second is this idea of 40 of perfect agility drills in the end of the end of the off season. And I don't want to get too far ahead on that. But when we start that, there's a technical and tactical aspect to this. And we create clear objective criteria for a good versus a bad rep, which is important. A lot of times in conditioning, we don't have very clear criteria what is good and bad. It feels subjective and it feels like, yeah, this one doesn't good. I'm going to make a point here. Where if I go to you clearly and on the onset of saying, this is good, this is bad. If it's good, we move on. If it's bad, we do it again. And the more we do it again, the more volume we accrue, which is the, the game here. It's trying to do this in the most efficient manner possible. And if we're not there technically, that means we got to do it till we get it right. And there's a perfect agility drill kind of component to this. There's a your fitness levels and the more your fitness levels are compromised, the more mistakes you are. So technically you're at a disadvantage and it goes into this big dynamic, but I'll hold off on that just yet. But that would be a good indicator of if my fitness levels aren't there, I'm probably not going to be good technically and tactically. And well, we can go into this direction of what do I need to improve from a workload standpoint, from a capacity standpoint, getting into, if I know that their VO2 max and their fitness levels are poor, just from their body mass or body composition, or this just overly, overly preoccupied with anaerobic phosphogen development, then yeah, there's an opportunity there and I can improve this bandwidth there. And I can start to look at other things in this model of, of training and periodization and go, okay, well, when do I need to get some longer duration interval work like tempo work or elongated strongman work or circuits or using specific stationary pieces like a bike or a versa or a versa climber or an erg or anything that we can do for extended periods of time that's not too technical or mechanical and we can just get great output from right and that's actually a really good point about you know quote-unquote gamifying you know training and like you have these objective data you're working with competitors like they want to compete they want to excel so if you have these clear objectives you know things like vbt all, all that it's going to drive intent. It's going to drive their buy-in almost as well. Uh, and we'll talk about VBT and stuff next week, I'm sure as well. But that's, that's a really great point. So I think it's probably a good segue to talk about what was the conditioning test I used with football. And as we start to break down, really looking at it, and you know, a lot of times we see this as uh, what is like, let's do 40 perfect 40-yard 40 sprints at 90% of your 40-yard dash, right? That, there's that dynamic to this. And Regardless of just doing linear sprints to assess fitness levels or looking at 150-yard shuttles or 300-yard shuttles or half-gasters, and if you're not familiar with these things, a 300-yard shuttle is traditionally 25 and back six times. A 150-yard shuttle is 25 and back three times, depending on what you want to make in terms of 
difficulty. A foot touch is a lot easier than a hand touch. Trust me, times get considerably slower when you add the hand touch, uh, especially with bigger Division One football players. These guys get up to six foot four, six foot five, six foot six. Touching a line with their hand is a lot different than me touching a line with my hand is five foot eight. So that bioenergetic demand is in exceptionally high when we add that just small element. But that's a nice thing to think about as we go into how can I titrate up the intensity when I'm doing these small-sided games, when I'm doing certain reactionary drills, when I'm doing more of these programmed agilities. I want to titrate up in one direction. Okay, well, I can add a hand touch or I can add a larger degree cut. I can increase the demand biomechanically, which will have an impact bioenergetically. But the other note, we could start to look at, hey, let's get a little bit Let's get a little bit more tangible with what we actually know is going to happen during football, but also too having some objective criteria from a fitness perspective. So one of the things that I really, really, I'm really proud of is getting to a point with every football coach I ever worked with of eliminating preseason conditioning tests. And the rationale was always, that's my domain and I will get them ready. And you can rest assured that you don't have to waste your time with a antiquated a approach to assessing what they did or didn't do in the offseason, right? When I worked Division Three in high school, that was always the push of how do I get to the point where I give my coach confidence that I'm going to get these guys ready all the way through till July. So when we get into there, we can get right to work. We can just get right to getting hands on the ball and working football to specific things. That's a big task for you as a strength coach. They feel confident in you that you can cover your ass and do your job to get these guys ready. Well, that's a big litmus right there. Find out how to get your coach to eliminate preseason conditioning tests. That means they believe in what you're doing. And one of the parts we did with that is come watch our agilities, right? I will promise you, you will walk away from there feeling confident that we are in a good spot. So one of the tests that we used to do was 40 perfect agility drills. And we broke it up into four quarters, right? Very football-y kind of thing. So 10 drills per quarter, programmed agilities. We, we splice in a little bit of reactionary work, uh, something where we really challenge them and do that. But the, the, the objective, not necessarily accomplishing 40 drills just to accomplish 40 drills, is accomplishing 40 perfect drills. And we create clear diagnostic for what is a good versus a bad rep. So for instance, if we're doing a line agility, like a pro agility or a 60 yard shuttle or anything where we're going back and forth for a predetermined distance and direction, we're going to give very clear objectives. Touch the line with your foot, touch the line with your hand, sprint through what, through what we call a power angle. I should see your shoulders out in front of your feet. If we're not, not a power angle. If we're doing a cone drill, like an end drill or a, a X drill or a U drill, not hitting the cone, getting around the right side of the cone, all pretty clear, yes or no. And I could have all my coaches around. Did they get around the cone? Did they knock it over? Okay. Everyone could see the cone knocked over. They know they're going to have to do that wrap over again. And then we could look at the final aspect from a reactionary drill or maybe even some sort of line drill or agility drill, like, like agility ladder, whatever it is, have you, can we get these reps perfect? And are they clear and objective? If they're not clear and objective, we can't hold you accountable to it. So as we start to work our way through, we're looking at all the things that we did before, right? So the first week we ever do this, I can't tell you a time that we didn't have what we call callbacks in the 20s and 30s, right? This, this, all right, this is the first time that it exposed to a high stakes conditioning like environment. 
I'm working a lot of biomechanics. We've been looking at a lot of progression from a lower learning. What's appropriate change of direction, keeping your shoulder inside that foot. What's a good linear speed mechanic. Let's push off that back leg. Let's drive that front leg forward, keeping a power angle. We've been working a lot of these things like in this, I guess, spectrum of performance and the real test from a, can we integrate this biomechanically is in that four quarter agility circuit. And yeah, 20, 30 callbacks. And then as we start to make a way through two, three, four weeks of this, the idea is to shave down that number to zero. And if we can get to zero, we're probably in a good spot from a preseason perspective. And they know it is, and we're building upon that. And there's a progression to this of, okay, you know what we're doing. There's no lying about this. There's no cheating this. There's nothing else. And from a fitness standpoint, Traditionally, what we say is usually early on, we're not going to do a whole lot of this phosphogen energy system development and this high repeatability change of direction work. So if we're looking at a work to rest ratio, it's going to be about 40 agility drills in about 45 minutes. So I, a one to a one to five, one to six work to rest ratio. And that's a bit, that's a good clip. And there's a lot of demands. And usually the worst shaped guys, the worst athlete guys are going to go last. And they're the ones who always screwed up. And that creates this second order of watching your leader's reaction to this. And I've had amazing interactions with our captains and leaders about what is leadership and just not saying silly things like don't knock over the cone. Obviously, they know not to knock over the cone. They just need to understand the importance of why they can't let down their teammates. It's fourth and one. You can't go off sides. You got to know the right steps. You got to know the play. You got to know the snap count, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. They have to build them into their mind conditioning that, hey, regardless of what's going on around them, they still got an objective in front of them. Regardless of how they feel internally, what's out going on externally, they still have to do what's in front of them. And it takes time. And that's the mental approach, the technical, tactical, from a physiological perspective, from a two-minute drill, from a, a team period to a like individual period. There's a lot of specificity from what they're doing. But there's also, hey, you got to get conditioned to being coached here. Like, right, the the fun of working the technical aspect of sprinting and change direction or weightlifting, right? The the missing a rep in weightlifting. It's not like you can say, I, Corey, if you don't hit this, you're off the team, right? There's an element of, I want to hit it. I just can't, you know, like I just don't got it today. The timing's not there. The speed's not there. Just don't have it. I've pushed hard and I can't, I'm going to miss. Or the sprinting and you don't get that knee appeal toe up in front or that change of direction and you're really working your ass off and pushing the threshold of what is good change of direction and that shoulder gets slightly outside of that leg. Okay, like it happens. But then when we get to this high stakes conditioning where if you screw up one drill, you got to do it over again with the entire group and everyone is now really upset, that has a different influence on you. And that's what I'm talking about from a, a conditioning perspective. And we, we would put GPS on them. We would put heart rate monitors on them. We would do all of the RP afterwards. But it's a very simple, are we getting net closer from a emotional, mental, physical, cognitive, technical, tactical aspect for football? And if we can get 40 perfect agility drills, I would argue from a bioenergetic, biomechanic, biomotor, technical, tactical, every type of thing that we're trying to prepare, we are in a good spot. So I can go to that coach saying, watch us week one in July, watch us week four, and I'll tell you right now how, how ready we are for football. And every time they walk away, like, you got it. Great job. High five. We'll take it from here. <laughs> and that's always a power of feeling. And imagine as a player. 
You just busted your ass for eight weeks in the summer, and then you got to show up for camp and do a conditioning test. What does that say about what they believe in that off-season conditioning work or that off-season training? Ah, I don't really believe in it, so we're still going to you know, checks and balances this. If they really believe in it, the players are going to get up on the table saying, we did everything we we're asked to do, and then some, we're ready. And the coach is going to believe it. They have to, right? And get faster to the things that we need to do. Trust me, all the physiological stuff is in place. You're good. Just go to work. That is an empowering aspect of really good understanding of fitness. And whatever that is for you, right? The basketball side of the world, the soccer side of the world, if you're playing futsal for a preseason thing, or if you're, you're doing three-on-three -three full court in basketball, whatever it is, I don't care. There's something out there. And one of the things that I would always look at with, hey, working with the sport and working with the working with the coaches and the athletes is like, I, I, this may sound crazy, but like back in the day, Herschel Walker used to do push-ups and sit-ups and run miles or, or Walter Payton used to run hills or whatever it is. Like Jerry Rice would run hills too. Like what, what do you feel like gets you the most ready to play? And it could feel antiquated. It could feel like maybe they just perpetuated a misguided notion or there's some logic to it. And you go, okay, if, if I talk to my guys and I say, what's, what do you feel like you're, when you can check that box, you're ready to play at a high level. A lot of times it falls down. Can I do, you know, a lot of these basic, very programmed agilities. And the, uh, the trick is, is influencing this reactionary, unpredictable, small sided game component in conjunction with that, or what we talked about with like a little bit more gritty, physiologically taxing things like strong man stuff with our inside the box guys. But you know, that that's the, the dynamic. It's all working around that, that ecosystem of what is actual objective and what can we say definitively from our players perspective, our coaches perspective, and from the, the testing and physiological perspective is getting us ready. And that would be what I would say is a good conditioning test for football. Yeah, absolutely. And I think uh, most coaches who are listening can relate to like, They've worked with a coach or two who just had this almost random arbitrary conditioning test that the athletes had to do. And like, you know, one of the first things you want to do is like, can we change this? Can we talk about this? And like, that's the template right there. It's like, Hey, I'll put all my chips on this and being able to do so having that, like, just like this whole block is like, we have this objective criteria that we're trying to hit. And if we don't hit it, like we know it's very obvious. The athletes know, everybody knows. So, you know, for the coaches out there who might be dealing with like that old school coach, like, like this is it. I think that will help us uh, wrap that up from here. Uh, Eric's going to go into a lot more detail here on his testing. So we got a lot to go through here going in the rest part of this podcast, but I, I really appreciate the, uh, the questions here. Yeah, Eric's going to have a, a great talk with you and I can't wait to listen to it myself. Uh, thanks for having me. If you like what we're talking about here in this podcast, you're definitely going to love this next thing. It's called Strength Deficit, your seminal resource to developing eccentric versus concentric ability with your athletes. We have a book, we have courses, we have everything you need to be able to implement, understand, and be the best strength deficit practitioner you could possibly be. You can get all of these resources at phpodcast.com and you'll become the best, and I mean this, the best possible strength coach in your setting. One of the things that we had a conversation about beforehand was a lot of times our prescription in terms of anything we're doing from conditioning or energy system development is kind of like ad hoc or just from the hip of like, oh, let's do 110s today or let's do some tempo runs or let's just do some 30 on 30 off. 
where I was talking to you about was, hey, is there a better way to prescribe maybe potentially duration, volume, intensity? And it kind of got us a really good discussion on your fitness testing. So I want to kind of go into that in terms of the direction of that of, hey, one, what is your impression of like most strength conditioning or performance coaches, like hey, a, a just overall approach to prescribing conditioning work or energy system work? And then how has that shaped some of the conditioning test or fitness testing that you've evolved to using with your athletes? Well, appreciate being here. And uh, it's a whole can of worms, man. This is a big, big topic. So I think if I if I think about like the the general approach of sort of just shooting from the hip and prescribing, you know, these sort of protocols, a lot of that are rooted in like just history of like working in a certain environment and there's just certain things that people have done, you know, and so if the 300 yard shuttle is a thing or 150 yard shuttles are a thing, suicides, whatever it is, then I think we kind of sometimes come into these environments and we just kind of like, we just start prescribing the things that, that we've uh, seen or some people have done and just sort of been kind of part of the the history of like that at that particular environment. So when I think about this topic and why maybe even why you would even get into some of these like fitness tests, um, I think a lot of it comes down to just enhancing your understanding of your prescriptions towards, you know, towards like normalizing uh, some of these things for different athletes. So it just the, the way I think about it is like, if you, if you walk into a gym with the team, you're going to start individualizing that the weights that are on the bars, right? Because we know that like every athlete isn't going to be lifting the same amount of weight in the, in the same exercises. We know that it's very common sense. You can observe that and realize that that's very, you know, very intuitive, but we don't necessarily always do the same thing when it comes to like our conditioning prescriptions. And a lot of that comes down to like, we have to have some form of like these anchors and these anchors are rooted in those fitness tests that give us, I guess, better uh, precision in what we end up putting together for athletes so that we can, again, just normalize these things. So, you know, these athletes are doing uh, work to rest and distances and things like that on these protocols. And, and then this other group of athletes may be doing something just a little bit different. So, and you can obviously get more granular depending on the precision of your evaluation and how deep you want to go. But ultimately, I think that's like the purpose, the general purpose for utilizing uh, maybe these fitness tests. And just realizing that there's a, there's a number of different tests you could use. There's a number of different models you can plug people into. And so I think maybe just having an idea of sort of this landscape, um, if you will, of, of all the different things you could do. Um, and then realizing, okay, what is the problem that you're trying to solve in, in your environment with your uh, clients or your athletes? And then what kind of fits best there and how deep can you really go? I, I, why, why we're discussing that and you know, like a lot of my backgrounds with football. And it made me think, how did we get to doing any like fitness or tracking or anything? And always stem from what we're going to do in terms of preseason and some sort of getting back to camp conditioning test. And a lot of times with 300 shuttles, sometimes we'd be doing gassers, sometimes we'd be doing 110s. And then it's this like pressure of, okay, well, if we want to be prepared for the test or show that we actually did something throughout the off season, we almost have to reverse engineer being good at that. And it starts to like get you focus on that almost in a, a myopic and maybe counterproductive way. Right. And I can tell you several stories of summers where like put the fear of God in us from our head football coach of everyone needs to pass that 300 yard shuttle test on the first day or they're not going to practice. And you're like, okay, well, there's only one way to really get good at that is to do it and do it a lot. 
not a very specific energy system. And it's probably a test that's counterproductive to going into a four week preseason with two a days and, and 24 period practices. But you know, that was the world you're living in. And then one of the things that you know, over time that we start to get better. I and mean, this is something that we were talking about too, of I think there's certain sports and certain parts of the performance world that just done a much better job at understanding bioenergetics and how they can kind of take the reins on that. And I think it's just demonstrating their acumen and, and overall ability. And I think as these conversations we're having right now and some of the research you showed with me is just having a vested interest in the overall development of fitness and and how that applies to making it through a four-week preseason or just a 82-game schedule or whatever other variables are on the, the docket. But soccer or even like more of this European model of a performance of like developing fitness as a component overall performance. And, you know, one, one of the things I think helped football a lot was GPS and looking at workloads from either RPE or actual like heart rate training or heart rate data. But Talk to me about now, like your backgrounds a lot, like you've worked soccer a bunch of different places and now you work a lot with basketball and talk to me about now, like that, like, is that like conditioning in your mind that like fitness based off the sports you work with, even to some of the other Olympic sports, like with water polo and swimming and anything else that you work with, like fitness is just at the forefront more so than like a power clean max or vertical jump max or a 40 yard dash with football. Like it feels like fitness is way more of a priority with any other sport in the world. Right. Yeah. I think any intermittent sport's going to require repeatability, right? So anything that is, is going to have some sort of like duration to it of intermittent activity is always going to be, you know, you're going to get into like, well, I mean, if you want to go deep, deep, like energy is going to be needed for anything, right? So you could you could technically say that energy is required even to do weightlifting activities, you know, like a weightlifting sport, but you're not limited by that particular uh, functional system, if you will. So if you look at more of these intermittent sports, the water polos, the soccers, um, even, you know, obviously basketball, then yeah, you're certainly going to have to repeat these uh, efforts to a level where you're you're going to get fatigued, you're going to slow down. You know, and ultimately, you're you're going to challenge your ability to cope with a intense environment, and I think that's really what what we want to try to prepare for, right? Because fitness is ultimately like we're just trying to meet the demands, the energy demands of the activities that we're involved with. But the second layer to that is is we need to make sure we can cope with those demands over a long period of time. You know, so it's it's almost like we think about things a lot of times in like a single exposure, like we do these needs analysis and we look at an individual game or an individual activity and we sort of think about preparing for that. But the reality is like, that's just one piece. Like you have to repeat that, you know, throughout the duration of the game, but you also have to repeat that throughout a season, you know, and there's, uh, there's practices, there's individual work, technical, tactical work, there's games multiple times per week, depending on your environment. So like you're always preparing for like, there's this sort of like micro preparation period and then you sort of have to like scale it out and look at how much you're going to have to cope with over a long period of time. So, you know, ultimately I think you're, when you get into any of these Olympic team sports, I think you need to have at least some grasp on some of the fundamentals when it comes to this particular topic of like bioenergetics, you know, and have some grasp on how you prepare people to meet these demands for sure. Yeah. And one of the things that I thought was there was a term you used intermittent, but then you also use the term coping. One of the things that 
I find with that intermittent word and, and correct me if I'm wrong, but that kind of classifies as like the old adage when you look at the, the walk, run, sprint profile or jog sprint profile of like soccer or any other sport where it's like you can use three different strategies at any given time or three different paces and your experience probably allow you to pace that more effectively. But it comes down again to if you have poor capacity or poor coping strategies or just the ability to recover, you're going to have to rely too much on this like lower speed output and you're not going to have the ability to go this high speed. Um, is that kind of like when you're thinking about like their overall, like what is their actual potential in a game situation to tap into higher speeds or utilize higher energy yielding phosphate groups or anything that like essentially they just limited their potential. They can only play seven minutes at a high level versus someone who can play 48. Like, is that the way you're looking at it or is that, com is that completely off base? No, that's definitely like the way I'm, I'm initially looking at it. You know, there's probably other things that, you could tap into to, to learn about what's limiting an individual, you know, someone's ability to play at a high intensity repeatedly. Um, that could be something as simple as like inexperience, right? So somebody who's more efficient at uh, their technical abilities may just, you know, float into the right positions. I always think of the messy example of like the dude doesn't cover a ton of distance, but the dude is literally like super explosive when he needs to be and is effective when he needs to be. And it's like, well, yeah, because he knows where he needs to be when he needs to be there. And so his efficiency within the game of understanding the tactical process is like huge. So there's that aspect to it for sure. But if you just look at it from like a performance standpoint and maybe what I have more of an impact on as a performance coach, then I'm thinking about, you know, what are the intensities that we want to be able to play at? And then can we play at those intensities repeatedly? And if not, what are the things that limit us from a physiological standpoint that I may be able to tap into in terms of my ability to like nudge those qualities up, you know, and how would I go about doing that given all the other constraints within my environment, all the competing demands that the athletes have to go through. So like, ultimately it's like, we can appreciate maybe some of those things, those like, I guess what you would just call like the technical tactical aspects of it. But at the end of the day, like, I don't have a massive influence on those things, you know? So um, in terms of like my day-to-day -day role and my day-to-day -day job. So I really have to focus again on the things that maybe I can impact and not, not under, you know, make sure I appreciate those if, if those are really the limiters for an individual. But, you know, ultimately we, we can, we can probably always uh, make some inroads and in some of these like physical qualities that can support their ability to, again, express these high intense efforts repeatedly. Yeah. You know, what's really interesting. And, I, I think about this quite a bit and for football or any other what we call phosphagen or alactic sport, you know, I look at capacity as this means to increase our ability to do higher intensity things. Like if I can recover better between reps, between sets, between training sessions, I'm going to be able to accrue more, right? I can get more speed work, plyometrics, Olympic lifts, et cetera. And that's hopefully good stuff that improves the right biomotor ability for me. But on the other end, it now is parlaying into like baseball, like what's a pitch count? What's the, what's the appropriate amount of games based off a guy's age, like minutes in basketball or minutes in hockey or how many shifts in hockey. And, and now we're kind of getting into this like workload management and we're trying to, I guess, 
I guess gamify would be the right term, but like trying to predict in a 82 game season or 162 game season or whatever game I'm playing in like football, like, Hey, how many high intensity reps can this person handle in a practice? When do we need to cut them? When do we do like start to back off? When do you start to adjust and toggle a lot of these other variables from, okay, now it's from full contact and football to just walk through or just helmets and all the stuff we're kind of teasing in and out of. So, I mean, I guess I would come back to you and say of like, you probably do have a huge influence on that. It's just not coming when you want it or when you expect it. It's going to be, hey, such and such looks slow. He looks like he's tired. Like, what's going on? Like, and then you're thinking, like, okay, what what can I do from a proactive standpoint to get in front of this, either to manage in the weight room or manage in terms of something as simple as like how intense the the movement prep is. If a guy's doing like 60 minutes of elliptical and then getting in the court, getting a thousand shots, and then we're going through a 60 minute pa- uh, practice or shoot around, and it looks like dog shit. You're like, yeah, it's pretty simple. <laughs> like he's tired. He's just burnt out all of his reserves here and he can't make it through practice. So I need to get out in front of him, like do that stuff after, or maybe we're doing too much, you know? So I guess I would come back to you and say of like, yeah, you, you probably do have a massive influence on it. It's just not coming from this like top down, like, Hey, I'm deciding everyone's on any given day, what they're doing. You're just having to find creative ways to influence your environment based off of just being logic and rational. But I want to get into the testing because I think that's something that is really top of mind here. Obviously the point of this conversation, but the other end of it, I I think it kind of gives some context and bandwidth to how you can determine what might be too much, right? Like you can look at a guy like Reggie Miller back in the day, like that guy never seemed to break down and never seemed to slow down and the equivalent would be like a Steph Curry now, right? Like the guy just runs for 48 minutes straight and seemingly doesn't seem to slow down. And I guess that point of like, you're looking at them, what would be too much for that guy? Um, and he's probably got a great intuition and instinct about how to manage what he's not doing off the court. But on the note of that, like, are you looking at baseline metrics and you show you shared with me a couple that i thought were really cool and interesting and definitely outside of the traditional like you know suicide or sidelines and if you're not familiar with the sideline test it's back and forth 17 times i thought it was the dumbest test in basketball i've ever seen but either way you know that kind of like prescription of like are you looking and apologize if you like the seven the 17 so i just never did but um you know when you're looking at like a profile of like okay this person has a credible capacity, I can tap into other things like a lactic or phosphagen, or this person has really poor capacity and I can start to tap into increasing their reserves. Like what are some of the tests that you like to use? And then I guess from there, it's how is that influencing your decisions going forward? Yeah, it's a great, that's a great question. Um, the tests that, you know, I like to use are, are, uh, there's a, there's maybe a couple different layers to, to how I think about that because ultimately you know, there's sort of like what I would consider like descriptive tests, right? So like something like a VO2 max test is like a more of something that's going to give some descriptive um, understanding of like these physiological underpinnings. And then there's more like prescriptive tests, which are going to ultimately be proxies to some of those like uh, physiological components, but ultimately, which everything's underpinned by the physiology, but ultimately they're, they're really good at giving you things to prescribe off of, you know? And so depending on the context of, of the, uh, I guess, of the problem. And so depending on that context may guide me towards a different, some, one of the different tests, you know, because ultimately like we utilize these, these evaluations to help us with our decision-making. Right. So that's really all they're, all they're here to do. 
And, you know, these are going to be based on, on like models, you know? And so I like to just think of like, there's multiple types of, there's multiple models and we want to maximize their strengths for whatever problem we have in front of us. So when it comes to like, say the, the, the stuff that we were talking about the other day in terms of like things that are really good for prescription, I think we, we do things that are more close to the demands uh, of the sport in the way that we think about the demands of the sport. So like, I think of like hit the hit training, uh, like the, the, the Paul Larson, the Martin Boucher, max aerobic speed hit training model being like something that's crazy useful from a prescriptive standpoint, you know, and there's probably, there's, there's plenty of probably limitations to these models, but ultimately what I would want to do is, is pick the tests that give me an understanding of how to like place somebody within this model, you know, and if you've never seen this, it's probably it's hard for me to just like describe and just like paint this perfect picture for you. But ultimately you're trying to find uh, a metric that's based on like max aerobic speed. You know, that's really what you're doing. So you might be doing like a beep test, something that we may be familiar with. Um, you could be doing something like a five minute all out, like max echo bike ride or erg bike ride, which is what you did the other day. And ultimately you're, you're obtaining this, this measure of, of, what would you call your max aerobic speed or your speed at your VO2 max? And based on that speed, there's a lot of prescriptive power. You can place somebody into this model and say, okay, well, now I'm going to prescribe interval training to try to, to try to boost this max aerobic speed. And ultimately, it's going to help me get a little bit closer and being more precise in how this person is going to execute those intervals as opposed to just saying, hey, go out and, and run, you know, at this time and do this as hard, you know, whatever. It's, it's just going to help you be a little more precise with how you end up putting that together. And so that's one model that I think is super useful is sort of this like hit training model, high intensity interval training model that a lot of people do use. I use it quite a bit when I was in like the soccer space, even in like baseball, we use this as just like our general conditioning. It just helped me put things together so that we could, we could just work on just this sort of general fitness in a better way. So that's one kind of big one. I think the other one is like this, uh, I call it like the, the zone training model, like the Andy Coggin is sort of like the pioneer of this um, zone training model. And people are probably really familiar right now with like zone, you know, zone two being something that's really, really uh, like a hot topic right now. It's kind of your refurbished like cardiac output type training. But again, it, it all comes down to like the prescription and the precision of how you apply that. So ultimately you could do things like a, an FTP, right? A functional threshold power test that's on a Peloton or an echo bike or whatever. And you could get, again, a metric that allows you to drop into this model. And then that allows you to prescribe and monitor and measure and work over time, try to try to nudge it up. And at the end of the day, you're simply trying to just, you're trying to simply push up these metrics, certain metrics, right? And so those metrics are your are your max aerobic speed and and um, in this case maybe an FTP like your your uh, power to to body weight ratio sort of thing. So there's a those are the kind of like the two main ones that I certainly use the most. You know, just again, and it it comes down to like you can you know we can get into a little more of the weeds here, but you can measure internal responses within those as well, and that could give you even more information, right? So you sort of have like these three levels, you sort of have like the, these external load components, then you have these like global internal indicators, things like heart rate. And then you have sort of these like local internal indicators, things like your muscle oxygen levels and things like that, which, again, can give you some some really interesting information as to like, how the person is actually doing, uh, or managing 
the the local internal physiology. So you can go you can go a lot deeper. But I think if you like are new to this, I would start with just like focusing on ensuring that you're at least hitting the external load demands of the activities that you're preparing for. And if you're if you're using this with athletes or with clients, then simply this is just a way to evaluate, monitor, be able to uh, see if you're making improvements and things like that in, ter- in terms of using these like tests to drop into these models that allow you, again, to be more precise with your precision so, or prescriptions of, uh, say, condi- conditioning sessions if you're training people and you're prescribing things throughout the week like running protocols or biking protocols, things like that. So very long-winded. I hope that was pretty clear, but um, if not, please rein that in a little bit. Yeah, yeah, we're we're gonna we're gonna rein that in here because um, those were very dense, packed, uh, high-level breakdown of that. I want to start start with the top, and I'm gonna assume a lot of the listeners here probably aren't grasping all of those things. So let's get a little bit more in the weeds on this. Start with VO2 max. Explain to me why what what VO2 max is to you, and then why is that important? VO2 max, the best way, uh, the best like definition, it's like the maximal uh, integrated capacity of our pulmonary system, our cardiovascular system, our neuromuscular system to uptake oxygen, transport that oxygen to the working muscles, and utilize that oxygen in the working muscles. Right, so it's it's simply giving us the uh, uh, the the capacity, our aerobic power, is what a lot of people will, will just refer to it as. It's an important metric. It has a lot of history uh, in terms of like it, it, it's a very Im- important metric for like health and longevity. We know that like there's plenty of merit to improving like a, a VO2 max, improving that capacity in like the general population. I mean, I just read um, Peter Atia's book, Outlive, and he mentions in that book that simply bringing your VO2 max from a, a low, like the bottom 25th percentile for your age group to the 50th percentile for age group is associated with a like a 50% reduction in all-cause all mortality. There's a good point in there, too, and I want to, not to cut you off here, but there's, and there's like the hardcore aerobic pundits out there will talk about at a certain point, VO2 max going from like a 60 to 70 doesn't improve your marathon time. That's not what we're talking about here, right? Like that's, yes, at a certain point, there's not much benefit. It plateaus in terms of how much VO2 max will improve your aerobic output. You're not going to go from a a three-hour marathon, a two-hour and 50-minute marathon because you improved your VO2 max by five points. But on the other end, it will have a huge significant difference for a hardcore anaerobe like myself or someone who's completely trained, right? And that I think that's, the, that's where the friction comes in, right? Like you can talk about us like strength zealots of like, oh, well, who gives a shit about being more fit? Like it's not going to help me squat five, 550. Like you're right, like not to the degree that you think it is. But on the other end, like same thing of like this hardcore aerobic person who's going to go poo-poo about VO2 max isn't unimportant. Like for you, who's running like a three-hour three marathon, no, you're already at an elite level VO2 max and it's just basically a chair off the Titanic. But it, most people are walking around with a very poor VO2 max and it, just a very rudimentary way to look at it. Most people are walking around with a pretty high resting heart rate and pretty high blood pressure and and really low HRV and all these other like what you kind of call global metrics and, and you know VO2 max. Like I, 
I guess the point being is what I'm coming across is if there is a very like hardcore fitness fanatic that's listening to this, like, ah, VO2 max isn't that big of a deal. Like you're wrong. Like it absolutely is. I I hope that doesn't come across the right way, but you know, like why I really want you to hammer this point home of like VO2 max has been grossly overlooked in my opinion for a long time, because I do think a lot of experts in the field are like, it's not as significant or correlate to elite level aerobic performance as it once originally thought. I think there's two issues here. I think the first one is, is the first, the first thing you're alluding to is like the, you know, there's like a limit, like people will say like, why in, in the endurance space, people with the absolute highest VO2 max aren't the best endurance athletes. And so there's this whole debate in the endurance space. And the reality is there's a trade-off. There's a trade-off here between your economy and your VO2 max, you know, so like your running economy and then your, your capacity. And so that trade-off at some level, you kind of want to be pretty good with both, but you can't just be super, super good. Like Oscar Svedson or whatever is the dude who has the highest recorded ever VO2 max. And he was never that good. I mean, he was still like an elite endurance athlete, but he didn't win. He didn't win the Tour de France. He didn't win anything. No one knows his name. And it's because of the fact that the dude was really, really good with a VO2 max metric. And it actually got better over time. But when you saw the VO2 max go up, his economy, his efficiency went down. All that means is it requires more energy for him to hit the same outputs. You know, that's like what that means. And so there's a debate in that space about it. The second place where I think our more like industry, our peers probably poo-poo it is because it's not prescriptive. It's kind of what we were getting at in the beginning. It's not that prescriptive. It's hard to do a VO2 max test, like a true gas exchange, like in the, in the lab test and prescribe training off of that. And it it also is hard to predict who's going to be good with, you know, who's going to be conditioned in the sport because you're pretty much removing an individual from the context of what they do. Say it's a basketball player and I'm removing them from basketball court and I'm putting them on a bike and I'm hooking them up and they do really good. That doesn't necessarily mean that they're going to be conditioned to play basketball. You know, Um, it's the same reason why Lance Armstrong, when he you know, retired from cycling and got into marathons, he wasn't like super, super elite at marathons because there's a specificity component to anything that we do. And just because you have a high quote unquote VO2 max, this capacity doesn't mean you can translate that into the actual environment that you're in. And so I think it gets poo-pooed in that respect, but we do have to respect that it does, it does matter. And that the systems that ultimately are working together, the sort of orchestra of these functional systems we can get a ton of information of how, like, what's lim- what's the limiting, what's the linchpin in the systems here, and we can actually kind of tweeze them out and actually work on those more specifically to try to raise this this VO uh, two max. And then there's this sort of integration into the specific activity that they need to be able to be prepared for. So I think you still have to appreciate it. I don't think you can completely say it's like a nonsense thing. I mean, there's so much there's so much research and information and history with this. But yeah, I think it's it's an easy one to overlook because again, when you really get down to it, if you don't work in a endurance space, then it, I guess testing this and retesting this and measuring this over over long periods of time, it just may not be uh, you know it may not be worth the squeeze there. So that's just ultimately we have to have to understand. But you you certainly should appreciate that it is an important thing. Yes, would you agree that it matters more if it's bad for an athlete? Oh yeah, for sure. Because I mean, if in that case, this person, you know, there's a trade-off, right? So the example you use for like a weightlifter 
if you want to get really good at weightlifting, it doesn't matter about your VO2 max. But if you want to train, you know, for years, you probably have to have some level of capacity to be able to recover from that demanding activity. Like you might be limited by your training in that sense, uh, may not be limited by like the one rep you're doing in the sport. So it's like, yes, I do think there's probably a level of like, it does matter um, if it's, especially if it's low. This is why we used to test it with baseball uh, or not test VO2 max, but we used to do conditioning with baseball is because I wanted to ensure that they could handle the rigor of the season. And I wanted to have, you know, sort of this like slop proof, like we don't want a bunch of slobs out there just like, you know, rolling in there with like a 30, uh, you know, 30 VO2 max. Like that's just not, you know, you want to be able to try to have some level of capacity. So it's probably more applicable if it's really, really bad. Yeah, for sure. And it's, but yeah, there's always a trade-off. So you do have to make sure you're investing time in the things that you want to, that make the most, uh, make the biggest difference. So I guess it goes into the next kind of component of this. And you were talking about a lot of different things, right? You talked about hit, you talked about zone timing, or zone timing model or training model, you talked about FTP and max aerobic speed. And then you're looking at internal or external, global, internal, and uh, global or local internal measurements. So what I kind of want to get across or go, go into next is at a certain point, like you don't know me, what's up, Eric, I am going to be one of your clients. And I tell you, I have a very specific goal of I want to lose weight. Or let's say that you're working with me as an athlete and I, my body composition sucks, right? Whatever the context there is, or reverse it into like another way of I want to gain weight, regardless of the goal, I guess I should say. But I have a very specific goal. And you look at me, okay, what do I need to know about this person from a physiology or how they utilize and or produce and utilize energy standpoint? And how are you going to assess that right off the bat? Great question. Tough one, because, you know, I might not actually like, I, I, I probably wouldn't off the bat, like throw you into uh, one of these tests, to be honest with you. I think it's like, I mean, again, we talked about this from the jump, like there's specificity of the test. Like you actually learn how to test, you know, if somebody's never done like a five minute all out effort, like the last thing I'm going to do is like throw them into a five minute all out effort just so I can say, Oh, now I have a benchmark and a prescription and this, that, and the other may not need to go to that level. Certainly after a period of time, there's probably some things that we want to throw them into to ultimately get us some better benchmarks and some better levels of, of again, that precision in, in our prescription towards what we're trying to do. So, you know, ultimately it's going to come down to probably what's going to help my next decision and what's going to ultimately help me measure things over a period of time. If this is somebody I'm going to work with for a long period of time and they have some goals that are geared towards improving their fitness levels, then we need to probably measure their fitness levels in some way. What are the things that, again, give us a really, that give us a really easy way to do so, um, that give us some understanding of the physiology and all that stuff? Then I think, yeah, there's a couple different there's there's things we can do and again we've just talked about this but a max aerobic speed metric through one of the uh, common tests is probably a really easy and useful way to kind of give us some understanding of their quote unquote their fitness so that is probably where i'm going to go but i could also use something as simple as their resting heart rate their heart rate variability you know things that don't necessarily need or require a ton of like exertion, right? So that could give us some understanding. So sorry if that's too general, but ultimately it would just really be like, yeah, whatever is like hindering my next step 
and having information to make a good decision, then that's like where I'm going to go. It's a real answer because a lot of times we can get on this podcast and talk about, and this is hopefully the difference of what we're talking about and what I call living vicariously through people that actually do the job conversations, talks, books, et cetera, like this hypothetical based framework that I would do this if I worked actually work with people. But since I am a producer of information, I need to constantly conjure stuff up. It's a real answer, right? It's like, hey, I got to convince this potential client, Tim, that I, I'm really good at what I do. And if I do a test to either expose them or that has no merit to what they what I'm going to do with them anyway, then surefire way to not build bias. But let's say, though, like for the context of, hey, this is a situation where, you know, I really want to understand what is going to be the constraint and limiting factor. You just mentioned like, all right, do a max aerobic power test and you can see that, which uh, breaking it down wise, just so someone has an idea of that five minutes on a stationary piece of cardiovascular equipment, try to get heart rate, look at the total distance, the total wattage, and and then you got maybe predictive formula for a potential VO2 max. Is that kind of the gist of it? Yeah. So if we take that test, like w- that's simply a, a max aerobic speed test, speed at VO2 max test, that zone of intensity, you can sustain usually somewhere in the, in the ballpark of like four to eight minutes. So really anything within that. So like the, the classic test could just literally be a mile test. Although like our industry hates people that run miles either way, we'll put somebody on a bike so we can, uh, you know, avoid that. So if you, if you do a, a five minute test on a bike, yeah, you're essentially going as far as you can in five minutes. And there's a, a number of metrics we'll extract from that. Again, you can wear a heart rate monitor and we can extract heart rate information, which gives us a good idea as to how your body's coping with some of these, uh, this demand. And then we can also, again, look at the level of the muscle, right? So now there's, there's Moxie, there's Nox that gives us an ability to, to look at that. So we have sort of those three kind of levels, right? We have the, the external metrics. So what was your RPMs? What was the distance that you achieved in that in that five minute time span? Uh, what was the average watts? You know, so watts a measure of output. A really good metric to look at over time is is your your uh, power output to body weight ratio. And so if you have your body weight and you have your average watts you can look at that. And I think that's a really good one in this context that kind of we were just talking about, because if people are losing weight, that's going to change that ratio, right? So if, if you were did this test and your average watts was 300 and your body weight was 250 pounds, and then you know a month later you do it and you get 300 again, you say, I didn't improve, but your body weight went down 10 pounds. That actually influences obviously that power to body weight ratio. So that's a really important one that, that you can look at and that's huge in the endurance world. So those are kind of your external ones. You can look at, again, the heart rate that we just talked about. What was your heart rate recovery? You know, your heart rate recovery, I think it was like 23, one minute, 50 after two. So we can look at that and say, okay, like that gives us some understanding of how how well you're able to kind of cool down from the intensity. I was elite there, right? <laughs> so average to below average is what we're saying. I would want you to be 30 beats or more probably yeah, in, in a minute, but um, you know, but Hey, you know, we all, we win some, we lose some in life, you know? 
you know, you get that. And then again, you can go deeper and you can get some of the, the local measures and look at some of the internal physiology as well. And you layer all those together, it gives you good information. But for the sake of this, we're looking at, you know, what do I do with that? Well, I obviously need to now work to improve that. It gives me something to work to improve. And so if we look at like your average watts, then we can plug you into really a couple different of these like quote unquote conditioning models. I can plug you right into sort of this high intensity interval training model, right? And then I can also plug you maybe into the zone training model, even with that one test. So it's really useful in that sense. But we're just going to go, let's go into like a high intensity interval uh, training model. So, you know, you take that number and, and uh, you didn't have Watts, right? But you had RPM. So we'll just use RPMs for this example. I think it will, you had 85 RPMs. Now I'm looking at it. Um, 85 RPMs. So I take your average RPMs, 85. I know that your resistance was at five during the entire test. So that was constant. Your average RPMs now we'll just utilize that as your max aerobic speed. Okay. So, so that's what we'll utilize. And then when we look at prescribing like intervals from that, there's some really good information on max aerobic speed, but like the sweet spot seems to be, if you want to bump up your max aerobic speed, you kind of want to work in like the, around the 120% of that value. And so for you, 120% would be somewhere in the ballpark of a hundred RPMs at that same uh, resistance that you had. So somewhere in the ballpark of 100 RPMs. So you want to work at that 120% of that value, but you know that at 120% of that value, you can't work very long, right? Because that's, you're going to just burn out. And so then we have to splice up the work to rest into these intervals. Well, again, if you have, uh, it's probably easier to show somebody a visual. I don't know. I don't have any visuals right handy, but if, if you have sort of this this table that gives you you know your uh your max aerobic speed rpms and you also have these examples of like what we would just call these these long intervals there's short intervals there's repeated sprint intervals there's these different categories of intervals that you can utilize to um to, to plug into well ultimately if we look at like the 120 percent we look at okay i want i want to work a 30 second on 30 second off interval then we can utilize that as like your prescription. And then ultimately we can build up that volume over a period of time, just like you do in, in any sort of training with progressive overload. It's like, you're just trying to nudge up these things over time. And so ultimately that's how we would prescribe and utilize this to kind of bump that, that measure up. And there's good, like basic volume parameters that I would kind of start with. And then I would just build out over time, just like anything else. And we would just measure that, but it is certainly a useful, like, it's a useful test. It's a useful metric. There's physiological underpinnings of like, of, of what's going on around that test um, and, and how people achieve that. But you could definitely get more granular if you wanted to look at some of the physiology. So um, I hope that's like a pretty useful way to kind of break that down. But that's maybe why it's, it could be so, so valuable. We'll, we'll wrap this up here. But one of the things that we've been getting a lot of in all of these discussions is this idea of resiliency and be able to go out there with your best and have your best players and the people that are going to give you the best chance to win playing as much as possible. And a lot of times it comes down to like what metrics are relevant to durability and getting more reps in practice or getting more minutes in a game. And it's coming down to for structural balance, how much can we preserve lean muscle mass? How much can we 
preserve length tension relationships, force length relationships for overall performance testing. It's previous injury. It's looking how that previous injury potentially might impact future injury and what things we need to test around that. And then we're looking at from a physiology standpoint, like, you know, this idea of like, hey, this person's heart rate recovery is really poor. So every time they try to exert again from that like intermittent zone of high speed or low speed, they're probably going to have some sort of compensatory action. So biomechanics are going to be impacted, or it's going to put them in such a compromised state going forward that they're not going to be able to recover for either that next quarter or that next day or that next game. And it's going to lead into this now downward spiral of them eventually getting sick or them basically getting hurt or them underperforming in a way. So all these things are just becoming more and more apparent that the the best in the industry and looking at performance and strength conditioning and how you can influence your environment in a positive way is looking at how do I increase the bandwidth and support that person from taking away this constraint from playing more minutes, getting more reps, playing at a higher level longer. And it just seems like fitness, structural balance, performance testing, testing in general is like, that's our job. It's a huge part of our job. Uh, is that something that you're thinking about now? Or is that something that like, you're like, yeah, energy system or bioenergetics or physiology is all about how to like raise the bottom up so they can not get hurt or play at a higher level longer? hundred percent, man. It's like, and I think, you know, every, every individual is an individual. So you have to look at like, what is ultimately I'm trying to figure out what's going to hinder their ability to play. Like, that's it, man. It's like, what's going to hinder their ability to go out and do what they need to do. And ultimately the body is going their their response to the environment is going to give you so much information to how they're coping with that environment. And there's always, you know, so that's like one piece of it. So we know like certain tissues are breaking down during the game. Well, then we need to try to build up and, and buffer some of the stresses so that we, we build up the resiliency of those tissues so that they can handle the environment, right? If they're constantly getting sick, we know that there's some things that we can do to hopefully build up a buffer and improve their immune system to be able to handle, again, and you get into the weeds with this, but handle uh, the environment so they're not getting sick all the time. You know, it's like, it's what is breaking down, where is it breaking down, and then how do I, you know, what's my best course of action to build the buffer to allow that to not happen? You know, that's really what it just like, you know, all comes down to. So this is where I think you just... You need to have a basic understanding of, you know, of sort of these, these models, these, these, these kind of frameworks here. But I think ultimately you also have to be pragmatic and realizing that a like delivering more stress isn't always the answer, you know? So like, just because you see something happen, doesn't mean like, okay, I need to be the, the sole person to go try to fix this. You know, I think we have to be careful and pick and choose what and, and how we add sort of some of this stress. And especially I think about that in my current environment, because it's like, there's so many competing demands here. So just because you see something break down, you need to maybe take a, instead of going route one or, you know, this, this route here, I need to maybe take this little side route here, you know? And so we didn't really get into it, but this is where I think some of the low intensity conditioning can be super helpful and why it actually does matter is because even when you see some of these th things break down, you don't have to always go towards the most specific way to get at the adaptation you're looking for, or sh I should say to get at the response that you're looking for them to be able to handle. But you can go this sort of side route and build up these adaptive capacities to hopefully help with, you know, with their ability to cope with with the more specific demand. So there's there's just like, yeah, there's a lot you can get into here. But ultimately, I think it's like, yeah, you, you just have to be, you have to understand that your work 
with each with your individuals has a cost and you have to just weigh that cost along the way as well so it's like just making sure that we're always trying to build these capacities we're always trying to be more resilient but you know what's the best course of action just be be pragmatic but also be strategic in how you think about that yeah, that's, that's, I think that's the perfect end, man. Eric, thank you so much for coming on and talking to us about fitness testing and all this. I mean, just a lot of really good nuggets. And um, yeah, this is one that's hopefully going to sit with some folks here for a long time and appreciate you coming on. Awesome, man. Always a pleasure. That was an incredibly dense episode. Big take homes we want you guys to think about when we're thinking about fitness testing is one, do it. Have a plan to assess someone's fitness. And if you're working with these more anaerobic team sports, and we all know the time constraints we have, as well as the other biomotor abilities in terms of force and velocity we have to develop, you can probably get a lot more from those force and velocity workouts by getting into this capacity assessment. We can know upper limits, we can know thresholds, we can know we reach these intensity parameters because we know what we can recover from more effectively. So fitness testing is a big, I think, step that we all need to take as strength conditioning coaches. We have a lot to learn from some of our counterparts in more of this European model, but also too, we can look at an inventory of where do we come up short in our actual intra training from a rep or set integrity? Where do we come up short from a microcycle design or even looking at it from a mesocycle design? And then looking at the capacity of a system is probably going to have a big influence on that. So a lot to unpack, a lot to really dive into. Definitely get on the actual website, become a member of the curriculum so you can see all of the transcripts and all of the suggested material as well as the video format of this because i think it will help in terms of eric and going through some of the stuff he went through and i uh, will actually put uh the actual test that eric recommended to do on the website as well so another really good value add by becoming a member of the ph curriculum hope you guys enjoy and we'll see you guys next week